Well, I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles, your electronic devices, whatever you may be using this morning, and join me over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are continuing our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through it verse by verse. We're in that section that we've just entitled Final Instructions. We began with it last week, we'll continue this morning, and then we'll finish up the book next week, and then that will bring us to Palm Sunday, and then to Easter, and then right after Easter, we're going to begin another series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, So if you want to be reading uh, ahead, you can be looking in Exodus chapter 20. But follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 22. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Aben Johnson was a very wealthy man. And an opportunity was presented before him for him to expand uh, his wealth. Uh, He was approached by a jeweler, and this jeweler had sold jewelry to uh, several celebrities, including golfers Jack Nicholas and Greg Norman, and he convinced Aben Johnson to invest in diamonds. So Aben Johnson bought a blue diamond for $3 million that was called the Streeter Diamond. This diamond, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, had won in a poker game uh, from a man named Streeter. That's how it got its name. He spent $2.7 million dollars for a collection of diamonds called the Russian Blue. He sunk another $17 million into the Sylvia Walton collection, a set of diamonds that belonged to Sam Walton's daughter. In all, Johnson invested $90 million in costly gems. I said he was wealthy, didn't I? Uh, the, elder, the elderly Johnson believed that the Sultan of Bruni wanted to buy all this jewelry. And so the jeweler convinced him if he put this collection together, he could sell it for over $1 billion. And so the jeweler just needed an investor that had enough money to acquire these diamonds. You know, God wants us in our lives to make wise choices that will benefit us spiritually. 
And God wants us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, to take the spiritual gifts, the things that he's entrusted to us, whether that be wealth, whether that be talent, whatever it is that God has given to us, he wants us to invest that and then to receive a return on what we have invested for his honor and for his glory. Now this morning as we go through this short portion of scripture, we are just seeing short commands that Paul is throwing out to the believers in Thessalonica. It's kind of like in machine gun fashion, boom, 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 boom. Here are the different things that Paul wanted to remind these believers about. Someone has said in the first three, which were told in the passage in verse eight, in verse 17 or verse 18, that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So the first three commandments that we will be looking at will be God's will for us. Oftentimes, people ask the question, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And often it relates to life decisions that they are making that they are struggling through. But there are three things that the Apostle Paul states very clearly in this passage that are God's will for us. We don't have to ask, is this what God wants us to do? We are told this is God's will for us. Now, one commentator said that this text is going to give us three impossible commands. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. The commentator said, I wish Paul had said, rejoice a lot, pray often, try to be thankful. We, we would find that more reasonable, right? If that's what the passage says. But that's not what the passage says. But let me remind you that God never asks us to do something that he doesn't empower us by his spirit to do. And I think our struggle with these first three commands that we're going to be looking at is they're often misunderstood in exactly what they are saying. So let's take these first three first and break them down. We're told in verse 16 that we are to rejoice always. Actually, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. Sometimes we think Jesus wept is the shortest verse. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the English Bible. But in the Greek in which the language in the Bible was written, this is the shortest verse. Rejoice always. Now, the joy that Christians had was what marked Christianity very early on. The world marveled at how Christians could have joy even when they were being persecuted. Even when they were dying as martyrs, they still had joy. And 
The world just cannot understand that. Now, in saying to rejoice always, it doesn't mean that we are always being upbeat, that we are never feeling sadness, because if that's what it meant, neither Jesus nor Paul met that standard. Remember, Jesus was called what? A man of sorrows. So this isn't about always walking around with a smile on your face, lying to everybody when they ask you, how are you doing? And you go, I'm just doing great. I'm just doing great. I'm doing wonderful. And we've all been guilty of that, right? You know, we feel most people don't really want to know how we're doing this day. I had a lousy morning on my way to church. My wife and I got in a fight on the way to to church. Now, I'm not saying that Barb and I had a fight this morning. We actually came in different cars this morning (laughs) to be here. (laughs) But if we had had a fight, I wouldn't be telling you about it anyway, because that would lead to another fight later on. (laughs) Plus, she sometimes tells me You get to tell your stories up there. There's many times she wants to tell the rest of the story. (laughs) And I'm sure that's how it is with all of our, our marriages. But it doesn't mean a fake spirituality where we're going around saying, oh yeah, I'm just happy about everything. No, as I said, even... Jesus and Paul would meet that. Remember when Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus and Mary and Martha were just having trouble dealing with their brother's death, Jesus wept. He showed his real humanity, God and man, the God-man. So it doesn't mean denying your feelings, putting on a happy face. What does it mean then to rejoice always? It's to recognize that God is ultimately in control and that God is always there and we can put our confidence in him and we can have joy even in the midst of of sorrow, because God is in control, because he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. Over in Psalm 1611, it says this, the psalmist writes, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's knowing that in the presence of our God, we have confidence, and that can put joy in our hearts. It is God's will for us to rejoice always. Uh, Second command that Paul gives us, we are to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, 
It doesn't mean that we walk around or we drive our car with our eyes closed. It teaches us that even our voice is not an essential element in prayer. We can pray quietly. It teaches us that the posture of prayer is not limited to one posture. Matter of fact, the posture that most of us have been taught as the correct way to pray would be, and I was taught this in Sunday school, you do what? You fold your hands, you bow your head, and you pray to God. That's nowhere found in the Bible. I mean, there's other postures of prayer shown in the Bible, but the one we've been taught as the correct way of doing it is not taught in the Bible. The closing of your eyes and the folding of your hands. We had for a while an individual attending our, our church who had come from an orthodox background. And he, he attended our, one of our services for the first time. And then when I got together with him, he says, Pastor Butch, you've got to explain to me what you guys are doing. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, why when you pray do you all look down at the floor? Isn't God up in heaven? He said, when we pray, we lift our eyes to the heavens to pray. So, you know, we can't adopt either of those postures all the time. I mean, you can't have your eyes closed all the time, your hands folded all the time, and neither can you be looking up into heaven all the time. It's not about the posture. It's not that important. Neither the place of prayer is not of great importance. Isn't it wonderful to know that because our God is omnipresent, we can pray to Him anywhere and everywhere. There is never a place that we as the children of God cannot call out to our God. We can pray wherever we are. Now, the words that is translated without ceasing is a word that means in the Greek, and this is in places outside the New Testament, it was used without ceasing, meant the uninterrupted payment of taxes. You work, you have to do what? You have to pay taxes. It's continuously. You continue to work, you continue to pay taxes. Uh, It's a word that is used also for someone that has a continuous cough, like a hacking cough. Have you ever had a hacking cough? You know, you, you just start coughing, you don't think you can, you can stop, but you don't continue to cough the whole rest of your life like that uncontrollably. No, but it comes, it's repeated over and over and over again. That's the word that's used without ceasing. It is to be a pattern and an attitude of our heart and of our life. That we can pray to God. We should have an attitude of prayer at all times. And what interrupts an attitude of prayer? When do we not want to pray to God? When we know we're being disobedient. 
When we're being disobedient, we do not feel like praying to God. So if we confess our sins and do that quickly and readily, we can be in a constant state of being able to pray and call out to God. Pray without ceasing. And then we're told in verse 18 to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean we give thanks for everything that happens. Obviously, there are bad things that are happening. There are evil things that happen. And we don't give thanks for that, but we can give thanks in all circumstances. Now, why can we give thanks in all circumstances? Because God is in control, no matter what happens. I mean, we do not have to thank God for the COVID virus, but we can thank God in the midst of the COVID virus, knowing that he is in control. And I don't know what is going to emerge as the new normal after COVID, but I know whatever it is, it's not going to surprise God. And I know that God has a plan for us to serve him and to honor him, regardless of what is going on in our world. And we can give thanks for that in all circumstances. We should have an attitude of thankfulness. Just as we were singing earlier this morning about the goodness of God, God is good even when we don't think he is. God is good and in control even when we don't understand. And even when things do not go the way that we want them to go, God is still good. And you know, in retrospect, many of us can look back on our lives at times when we didn't understand what God was doing. And maybe in our spirits, we even felt a little upset with God and what he was doing. But now, years later, we can look back and see that and understand that God was being good to us in what he was doing. So we can give thanks to him in every circumstances. You know, a person giving thanks to God in their circumstances was something that had an effect on John Wesley. Thirteen years before John Wesley came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, he had a conversation with a porter at the college he was attending. The porter had only one coat. He had eaten no food that day, and yet his heart was full of gratitude to God. Wesley said to him, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie upon? What else do you thank him for? I thank him, answered the porter, that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him, and a desire to serve him. It's a matter of perspective. These three things are God's will for us. Rejoice always, 
Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Next in the passage, I want us to see God's work, what God is doing and our response to it. In verse 19, we are told, do not quench the spirit. Actually, a proper translation of that is stop quenching the spirit. Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in response to questions that they had, and though we do not know for sure what the problem was that Paul was addressing there, Paul was addressing an issue, and it was an issue to where they were quenching the work of the Spirit of God. And Paul simply says to them, stop quenching the Spirit. Now, the word to quench uh, is a word that means to put out a fire, to suppress, to stifle it, to put water upon it, to quench the fire. And so as Paul is writing to the church, he's telling them, you need to stop quenching the fire of the Spirit of God. You need to stop quenching what God is doing in your midst as a church. Now, there are two commandments that are given to us as it relates to the Holy Spirit that relate to this. Do not quench the Spirit. And then over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we are told that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So to quench the Spirit, to grieve the Spirit, both are connected to sin by our deeds or by our thoughts where we are not obeying the Spirit of God. We will always grieve the Spirit of God when we are in sin. And so the Spirit of God is grieved when a Christian is not walking in the truth. The quenching of the Spirit seems to have more to do where the Spirit is trying to do something and we won't listen and we won't obey as to what the Spirit is doing. So we need to stop quenching the Spirit of God. Uh, For us as believers, Today, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us, and the Spirit of God directs us in our lives, and we quench the Spirit when we refuse to listen to the promptings of the Spirit of God. So stop quenching the Spirit. Next, we're told in verse 20, do not despise prophecies. And there's a lot of different opinions as to what this verse means. Uh, First of all, the word that's used for prophecies here refers to both written and spoken word. In the early church, there was the gift of prophecy. And prophecy is not just focused on the future, it's also focused on the present. It's the foretelling of God's word, not the foretelling. Now, sometimes it has to do with foretelling of things in the future, but it's the giving forth of God's word. So 
we need to remember at the time that 1 Thessalonians was written, and this is one of Paul's earliest letters, and it may be the very first letter that he wrote. They didn't have the written Word of God, except for the Old Testament. The Word of God is being written at this time by the apostles. So how did, when people came to church, how did they know what God wanted them to do? Well, there were prophets in the church, and there were those that God gave the gift of prophecy to, that they would stand up and they would say, the Lord has spoken and this is what he has said. Then there would be others within the church that would have the gift of discernment, and they would say, yes, this is truly from God, or this is not from God. Now, today, there are those that want to define prophecy as an urging that God puts on the hearts of believers. And in churches, they'll have people stand up and say, I have a prophecy from God. And they will say what it is. And they don't claim for it to have biblical authority. Well, I don't believe that's what this verse is talking about. When it says prophecy, it's that which comes from God. And so I believe for us today, it's talking about the written word of God that we are not to despise the written word of God. Then in verse 21, we're told to test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Test everything. You know what everything means? Everything. We examine everything. It's a word that they would use to examine metals to see if they were genuine or not. That's what we are to do with the Word of God. You don't accept any teaching. I don't care who it comes from. Just based on the authority of that individual, you examine it in the light of the Scriptures. That is the test. What does the Bible say? So if I preach something that doesn't line up with what the Bible says, don't believe me. Believe the Scriptures. And no one here who is preaching and teaching is ever going to fault you for studying the Scriptures to see whether or not what we're saying is true. Paul said those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures to see whether what Paul was telling them was true or not. If they can examine the Apostle Paul, you can certainly examine any pastor, any radio or TV preacher, examine it all in the light of God's Word. And then lastly, Paul says in, in this portion of the passage, abstain from evil. Abstain from evil. The verse said abstain from every form of evil. In some translations, it says every appearance of evil. Now, this is a verse that has been greatly misused to limit the liberty of Christians. What we need to be staying away from, abstaining from, is not things that will upset other Christians, but things that will upset God. If you try to live your life to where no Christian will ever have any objection about anything that you do, good luck with that. It won't happen. 
This verse has been misused so many times to limit the freedom of God's people and saying, well, that has the appearance of evil, and that has the appearance of the evil. Uh, you can't go into a restaurant where alcohol is served because it'll be the appearance of evil that you're drinking if you do that. That's an example of how this verse has been used. Uh, I've heard this verse used. Uh, you, you can't go roller skating because that'll have the appearance of evil. They play that worldly music in there, so you'll have the appearance of evil. You can't get a Sunday newspaper because someone probably worked on Sunday to get that paper to your house, so no Christian should ever get a Sunday newspaper. Now, these are real examples I'm giving to you. I'm not making these up. These are things that people have believed. That's not what the verse is saying. Stay away. From evil. Well, I shared with you in the beginning the story of Aben Johnson. Aben Johnson found out that he had not bought genuine gems. He had invested in worthless fake diamonds. See, Sam Walton doesn't even have a daughter named Sylvia. To swindle from Johnson... Jack Hansen created an elaborate scheme to make the elderly businessman believe that the Sultan of Brunei wanted to buy the jewelry. Uh, Jack went so far that he hired his cousin to dress up and act like a fake sheik. And they hired a prostitute to appear as a harem girl to be along with him. Well, Jack Hansen was arrested for fraud. In 2000, he was convicted and sentenced to 40 years in prison and ordered to pay $78 million in restitution. That will never happen because the money was all gone by that time. What was the mistake that Aben Johnson made, he did not have someone test to see if the gems were real or not. As sad as that is, it is even sadder when people are deceived by false teachers and are presented with a way of salvation that is not true. Test everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we pray, Father, that you will help us to be obedient to you. Help us to strive to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.